Well, if you want to turn with me in your Bibles, we're going to be in the book of 1 John this morning, chapter 2, specifically verses 15 through 17. And the thing we want to talk about this morning as we enjoy God in the midst of his word is our heart's affections. Uh, I know many of you in this room are parents. You have children, and you look upon your children with a loving concern. And let me just ask you parents this question. Which do you want most from your children or for your children? That they would come to church or that they would want to come to church? (laughs) That's a pretty easy question for any parent I'm willing to bet. You might be able to coerce them into coming to church, but that is not as good as if they wanted to come. If you didn't come, they would come anyway. Which do you want more? How many of you wish that your children would do the right thing? Of course we do. But don't you wish more that they loved what was right? Yes. And our Heavenly Father looks on us, I won't say in a similar way, but even in in an even higher way than that, which is normal for us fallen earthly parents. He is most concerned with your world of inner longings. He is. And here we confront the, our God, not confront, I guess encounter would be a better word. We encounter our God in 1 John 2, 15 through 17. This is your God. This is your Father. This is his heart for you. He says this, beginning at verse 15. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Uh, Here's how I want to break up this passage this morning, and I just pray that God would give me the words to do it justice. I really think John is making a couple of big points in our passage for this morning. Uh, He is talking about our hearts, our affections. I don't know what's going on. Okay. And And how dangerous it is, how dangerous it is when our heart's affections come to rest on the world and the things of the world rather than on God and the things of God. He is describing here some very dangerous affections. His first point is this. John wants us to know that our earthly status is a temporary test. I will, now none of that language is in our text for this morning. Uh, Bear me out though, I believe it's here. The second big point or takeaway is that our faithfulness in the midst of our earthly trials will be rewarded by God. And then I want to conclude the message this morning by asking what these observations have to do with our ongoing conversation this month about being a people who love God, love others, and love in action. Those are the three things we want to take a look at this morning. Let's take each of these points in turn. First... Your earthly status is a temporary trial or test. All of the trials that we experience in life will fall into one of two categories. Test me in this. 
See if this is true. I think all of your trials will consist of either experiencing poverty or prosperity in something. Either we have too little of a thing or too much of a thing. All trials, I think, consist of this. And if we have too little or think we have too little, then a love for the world will find expression in anxiety or covetousness or bitterness. And if we have too much, then a love for the world will find expression in fat-hearted trust in our material abundance, an idolatrous impulse to hoard, tearing down barns and building bigger ones, and a callous disregard for the needy. And like all trials, the trials of prosperity and poverty are allowed to enter into our lives to reveal and refine what is in our hearts. The reason why I want to start by putting a finer point on this, the idea of a trial of prosperity or poverty, is because when we say a thing like, do not love the world, what do you do with that? <laughs> That's pretty broad, isn't it? Doesn't that require some definition? I mean, Jesus, we're told in the Bible, what is the most famous verse in the Bible, arguably John 3:16, for God so loved the world. So we're not to love the world. What is going on here? Well, obviously something different is, mean, is meant here. But even with that, we need to put, I think, a finer point on this so we know we can see and understand if we are in love with the world. So all of the trials we experience, I think, are, can fall under this category of either trial of prosperity or poverty. Take money, for example. I would be hard-pressed to say which is more dangerous, spiritually speaking, having too much money or too little. Both poverty and prosperity are best understood as a test, and we could talk about lots of different things here besides money. We could talk about being employed or unemployed. We could talk about being married or single, athletic or clumsy, healthy or sick, desirable or undesirable, and on and on and on. Both of these represent poverty and prosperity in something. But I choose money as an example because it is easily grasped in our minds and because the Bible speaks of money almost as a stand-in proxy for the world. For example, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said you cannot serve God and money. Money there representing the world, essentially. So let's talk about this. First, trial of prosperity. We read about this in Deuteronomy 6, 10 through 12. Here's an example of one. This is uh, God giving instructions through Moses to his people before they enter the promised land. And it says, And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob to give you with great and good cities that you did not build, and houses full of all good things that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant. And when you eat and are full, prosperity, then take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of slavery. What God is describing to his people here is a coming trial of prosperity. He tells them openly, you are going to come into you're going to be rolling in it. <laughs> you're going to be living in stuff you didn't have to build. You're going to be surrounded by abundant material prosperity. And I'm telling you right now, when you eat and have your full, be careful 
that you don't forget God. Don't forget me. This, by the way, is a really, I think, frighteningly accurate description of my generation, of this generation of Americans, where we're living in the midst of things that we didn't scrap for or build. I'm driving on interstates. I didn't have a hand in building. I'm living in the midst of great material abundance. The systems that generated it, I did not have a part in creating or building or furthering. I'm just the beneficiary of it. What is this generation doing? They've eaten, they're full, and they've forgotten God. If you took all of the people in the world and you boiled them down to 100 representative people, six of them would be Americans and they would have over 50% of all the world's wealth. Even the poor among us and Americans are among the 1% global elite in terms of wealth and prosperity around the globe. And there is no doubt that the great trial testing the American church is a trial of prosperity. So I think we need to pay wonderful close attention here to this trial of prosperity. When God, when God says, do not love the world, don't think that this is just for people who live in the midst of prosperity. You can also love the world from a place of want or need. You can hold on to what little you've got with a white-knuckle grip <laughs> as well. You can sin regardless of which side of this you're on. Don't hear me wrong, but I'm just saying that for Americans, most Americans, the thing I want you to zero in on and pay close attention to as a society is the trial of prosperity. Uh, something that falls really hard on American ears are verses like Matthew 19, 29. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. This is saying for those who walk away from the wonderful things that you have in such abundance, wh whether it be a, a, a house or relationships, and you do that in obedience to my call on your life, I am promising you a future reward. But in the midst of that abundance, you're being challenged, you're being tested. Let's talk about the trial of poverty. In 1 Corinthians 8, we read this, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, test, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. That's interesting. The test there is a test of poverty. How are they respond in their hearts? Will they cling to what little they have with this white-knuckle grip? Or will they worship God even in their poverty? That's an interesting verse, a powerful, challenging verse. James, in his letter, addresses the trial of poverty and the trial of prosperity simultaneously. He says this. This is James 1, verses 9 through 12. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away, for the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes, so also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. 
Here when it says, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, he starts by addressing the rich and the poor. Both are in view when he says this. Those who have been blessed with prosperity and those who are struggling in poverty are both in a test. And he says here that the one who remains steadfast under trial is blessed, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. Please note in verse 9, James calls both the poor and the rich to boast in something. Two things follow that observation. Again, money itself is morally neutral. It can be a snare to the rich and to the poor. When Jesus said that where your treasure is, there your heart will be also, he was talking to rich and poor people. He also said, take care to be on guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of one's possessions. If it is true that where your, heart, heart, where your treasure is, is where your heart will be also, then I think covetousness is best understood as when your heart resides in someone else's bank account. But just as both poor and the rich can sin in their attitudes towards money, so too can both be pleasing to God in relation to their finances. There is a godly way to respond to your status. Whether the trial you faced is poverty or prosperity in something. And again, this isn't just about money. It can be whatever it is that you are prosperous or poor in. James says, let the lowly boast in their exaltation and the rich in their humiliation. In the Greek, the word translated here as boast means glory in, revel in, take delight in. So to the poor, James is saying, glory, revel, take delight in your exaltation. Hebrews 11.1 1 defines faith as being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. For a poor Christian to boast in their exaltation, they must be able to see through their deceptive temporary status here on earth to what is coming and what, in a sense, already is. That somehow, in God's economy, it is possible to give more in our poverty than those who give vast amounts out of their abundance. And that there is a treasure laid up where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. Uh, there, I'm, I'm, I'm quoting there and talking about giving uh, vast amounts out of their abundance. Of course, the story of the widow's might. Remember, Jesus is standing outside the treasury, and he's watching people come and put money into the treasury. Rich, wealthy people were coming and just dumping in boatloads of clinky, hard, cold metal in there, <laughs> just, just with their buckets, like, look at me, right? And then the widow comes up and puts in a very small amount of money, and Jesus makes an amazing statement. He says that she gave more. In what economy? In God's economy. I think this is really important to remember. Um, if we find ourselves poor, and I don't mean just money. Again, I don't mean to just harp on money. Money is, is more of a stand-in for all of the things in the world. Take, for example, time. I, I think Americans are very uh, wealthy materially, but we oftentimes are time poor. We're, we're, we're money rich and time poor. 
And it's not even always just because we're running, 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 trying to make money, although certainly some of us are doing that too, but because we use our money to buy stuff that then takes up our time. <laughs> I make lots of money, so I buy a camp, and then I have to fix the camp and work on the camp and retreat to the camp, or I buy a boat, and so I have to go fishing. I have to justify the purchase of the boat by then spending time on it. And then the boat has needs, and so I gotta do this, I gotta do that. You know, we have all this money, so we spend it on stuff that then requires our time. So we end up being money rich, time poor. But here's something to tell you. Some of us say, for example, I don't have time for small groups, or I don't have time to read my Bible, or I struggle to find time to pray. And I don't actually think that they're wrong. They don't. Uh, right now, I'm in a stage of life where uh, Sarah and I have another baby. We've got six kids. I'm working. I wake up with the baby in the morning usually or something like that, and then, you know, it's just until I fall asleep in the recliner in the afternoon. <laughs> and it's really hard to find time in there. I'm actually right now, I'm in a season where I'm kind of time poor. I am. And maybe you are too. But here's the wonderful, hopeful, blessed thing I can say to you. You have a more precious offering to give your God than if you had vast amounts of free time. You've thought about that? Maybe you only have a half hour and it's in the shower <laughs> or in the drive to work. But you choose in some way to spend that half an hour with God. You have given more, I would offer, than those who give vast amounts out of their abundance of free time. Some things to keep in mind there. So for a poor Christian to boast, they are looking through the circumstances of their life to what is coming, the promised reward and to the rich, he calls them to boast in their humiliation. That word humiliation carries with it, of course, a very negative connotation in English. When we think of humiliation, we usually think of something being done publicly to shame or embarrass a person. Humiliation, as it's being used here, though, means simply the process by which someone is made humble. So he says, if you have lots of material wealth, uh, boast in your humiliation. Boast in the fact that God has made you humble in the midst of what would harden others into a prideful, fat-heartedness. Boast, you wealthy, in the merciful way that God has made you humbly aware of your dependence on him for all things, and the way he has made you to see the great responsibility that comes with the resources you've been given to steward for his glory. I think, by the way, Jesus gave us the ultimate picture of what this looks like, didn't he? Can you imagine anyone wealthier than God? <laughs> no, there is no such thing. But Philippians 2, 3 through 11 says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. And your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing. Jesus, in the midst of great prosperity as God, made himself nothing. He's set for us an amazing example there. Here's the main thing. Some of us have much, 
Others have less. And regardless of which is true for you personally, we are all being tested. It is a test of prosperity or poverty. These things are a crucible for our lives, for who we are, and for what we love, and for what we are becoming. Tests reveal and refine. They reveal what's there in our hearts, how we really are, what we really think, what we really cherish, and how we really live. And they refine, which is to say that they take what is there and they make it deeper and more true. Jesus said in Luke 12, 34, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And the movement of our money or our time or whatever else signifies the movement of our heart. Where your money goes, your heart is going. We exchange money for what we value and what we treasure. So the money in my pocket has the capacity to reveal what I value. The paper's nothing, but its expression of the treasures of my heart is everything. And John says, for all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. In the midst of your test, whether it be a test of prosperity in something or poverty in something, what is revealed about the movement of my heart? Which is dominant in me, the desires of the flesh or of the spirit? When John says the desires of the eyes, that's an interesting description. Natural sight is sometimes presented in the Bible as the opposite of faith. For example, when the Bible speaks of walking by faith, not by sight, or when Hebrews 11 says, defining faith as being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. So there we see that seeing with our natural eyes is the opposite of seeing by faith in a thing. Trusting God for a promise that's not yet visible is in many ways the opposite of what we see. The Bible gives no word of encouragement to those who would quit the life of a sojourner and make a home for themselves down here. We are, after all, the spiritual descendants of Abraham, who lived in, by faith in tents, not Lot, who settled in the plain. I can remember when I was a kid, um, we left for our, every year when I was a kid, we'd go on a two-week vacation to my grandparents' lake house in Vermont. I loved it. I grew up in Washington, D.C., and uh, we would leave our house super early in the morning, and on the ride, my parents would usually give us some money for the vacation. It was not much. Um, this was back, probably back in the 80s I'm talking about. So they'd give us maybe $5 for the whole two weeks, which for me was big money, huge at the time. You know how many penny candies you can buy with $5? I'll tell you, 500. <laughs> That's a lot of penny candies. I was pretty excited. I've always been good at arithmetic. <laughs> but here's the struggle, right? They would give us $5 because they knew that over the course of that two weeks, we would go to like farmer's markets and things, we'd see things we'd want and we'd come to them and say, mom, dad, I want this. And they would say, do you still have any of your money? And so that was how that conversation ended most of the time. <laughs> so that was just their strategy to get us out of their hair. But invariably what would happen is on our vacation, I would stop at like the first gas station and I'd go in and I'd see like a Snickers bar or something. And a couple times we got to our vacation and I was out of money. <laughs> I 
I'd spend it on lickies and chewies and soda pop and all kinds of stuff driving up to the, where we were going. Had nothing left for while we were there. And there's something here to see. Uh, there, there's a struggle in this life for settling for what we see. It's very hard to live by faith, isn't it? When I said, okay, mom, dad, I'm going to buy this thing. They're like, well, Josh, this is first day of vacation. We're going to have lots of fun. We're going to go here. We're going to go there. You're going to go to this attraction, that attraction. You're going to want money. And I'm just like, yeah, but I can see the Snickers bar right now. I want it. And I think that a lot of life in this world is like that. Like if you brought my little son Charlie up here on the stage, I'm not picking on Charlie, but he's young. He's not fully formed as a human being yet. And I said, son, do you want this lollipop or do you want a truck of lollipops next year? That would be a hard decision for him <laughs> because the lollipop is here right now. It's in front of him. If he takes it, he can taste it. But in taking it, he is foregoing a whole truck of lollipops, millions of them next year. One of the dynamics in the Christian life is this. We are called to wait, to wait. When the chief shepherd appears, he will bring for you the unfading crown of glory. But I want to grab a crown right now. I want to take what's around me and enjoy it. And God says that he is glorified most and we will ultimately be happiest if we wait. So, he, so John uses these three descriptions, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. I think that this pride of life is characterized by a grasping desire for more. And it is the opposite of both a humble contentedness in this life, and it is also, a long, it is also the opposite of a longing for reward in the life to come. A pride of life is having a, a, a prideful, grasping desire for more of this world. It's the opposite of contentedness. And it's also the opposite of a spirit whose affections are trained on the reward that is yet to come and is not yet fully realized, but promised. So that's the first thing I want you to see. Uh, one of the things when we talk about do not love the world, that command is given because it is so stinking attractive. The allure is so powerful. God is saying in a command, don't love this thing. It is pure poison. And, and any of us, again, who are parents know, know what that feels like to tell your kid, don't touch the hot stove. <laughs> but it's glowing red. It looks like something that would be fun to touch. No, it's not. It'll burn you. And what God is saying is this, I know you're powerfully attracted to the world and the things of the world, and I'm telling you, don't love it. It is pure poison. And the way that that will find expression is in a, 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 a gluttonous desire to hold on to what we have in abundance or a covetousness, a bitterness, an anxiety about what we lack. So I want you to know, I want you to see the terrain in your heart that the enemy is navigating if today you are poor in something, be careful about what grows out of that experience. Take, take stock of your inner world, your heart, your longings, your affections. 
What is growing out of your experience of not having what you want? Or if you have lots of what you want, what is growing out of that? If you just have loads of friends, uh, one of the things Sarah and I experienced early on in our uh, marriage, in our life and ministry together, we had a small group, this is back when we were living in California, where we had multiple folks in our small group who were struggling getting pregnant. It's a horrible thing to go through for a lot of couples. It's very difficult. And it was difficult also at the same time because Sarah and I were just popping out babies left and right, right? And she'd go to the bathroom and come back with a baby. I'd be like, what happened? <laughs> That's how it felt like in those years. And so we're living in the midst of a prosperity in something, right? And there were others who were looking on us and they were struggling. They wanted what we had. Now, that's the kind of dynamic that we are interacting with constantly as human beings, whether it be money or babies or marriage, romance, whether it be free time or your employment or the job you'd like to have or whatever. We are constantly living in the midst of something that we've been blessed with or that we're left craving for. We're always on one side of this or the other in stuff. And in the midst of that, you can tell if you love the world by how you respond. Is my lack of the thing, is the thing I lack, is it flowering within me in this spirit of bitter covetousness or anxiety? In the thing I have abundance in, am I open-handed with that thing? What, what is growing in the midst of that? We need to be very careful about this. Okay. So that's it. I want you to know this. And the first thing that John says is this, whatever your status is, it's temporary. It's coming to an end. There is a day coming where there's going to be a great reversal of fortunes and we'll enter into reward for, if we're faithful. That's the second thought here. Our faithfulness in the midst of these trials will be rewarded by God. 1 John 5.17 says this, And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Have you guys ever encountered this passage in Hebrews 10? It says this. The author of Hebrews is writing to Christians, and he says this, But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully, get this, guys, oh, what a powerful line, you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. Joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. Businesses seized. Stuff confiscated. Joyfully It says, therefore, it was, oh, and then it gives this, the reason you joyfully accepted the plunding of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. <laughs> Brothers and sisters, do you believe this morning that you have a better and an abiding possession? Do you believe that to such a degree that you would joyfully accept the plundering of your property? A Christian, I think, who's truly grasped this is invulnerable to the, the schemes of the world here. 
the world comes to say, I'm going to take this stuff away from you, and he says, I don't have anything. <laughs> it all belongs to God. The world comes and says, oh, but I'll give you this, and you say, I already have all things. God has promised me a great inheritance. You, the world has neither stick nor carrot for a Christian who truly grasps the coming day of reward. Take it. I don't have anything anyway. It all belongs to God. You can keep it. God's promised me all things. <laughs> you have neither stick nor carrot, world. These people that are being described in Hebrews are a rare, rare thing. It's what I aspire to be and what I will confess to you, brothers and sisters, I am not yet. I want to be, though. He finishes by saying, For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. Oh, God, give me that endurance. In Psalm 73, we read this. This is a a very raw, honest moment from a psalmist in Psalm 73, verses 2 through 5. It says, But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I'd nearly lost my foothold. For I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. In other words, this psalmist is just looking at the wicked, arrogant people all around him, and they are just driving fancy cars and living high. He, in verse 4, he says, They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They're free from common human burdens. They're not plagued by human ills. What is blossoming in his heart right there? <laughs> Some covetousness, a little bit. But then in verses 12 through 14, he says this, This is what the wicked are like, always free of care. They go on amassing wealth. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and have washed my hands in innocence. All day long I've been afflicted and every morning brings new punishments. God, what reward is there in following you? I look around the world, I see my neighbors, and they have rejected you, but they are rolling in ease and abundance. And all I've gotten in exchange for following you is trouble. In our own day, we see the wicked prospering, and we might be tempted like the psalmist to question God's justice. We might even begin to feel envious of the wealth that others enjoy. And there is a danger here, a very real danger that John is addressing when he says, do not love the world. That we might take our eyes off God as our treasure and our portion forever and set our hearts and hopes instead on the desires of the flesh and of the eyes and the pride of life. This is how the psalmist ends Psalm 73, by the way. When I tried to understand all this, it troubled me deeply. This guy is just very confused. He's heartsick. Until I entered the sanctuary of God, then I understood. I understood their final destiny. Surely you place them on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. How suddenly are they destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. They are like a dream when one awakes. When you arise, Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. In other words, they have pinned their lives to a mirage. They have lived their lives chasing after a ghost of a thing, an elusive wind that you can never grip in your hands. 
I love that. They are like a dream when one awakes. Have you ever awoken from a dream? <laughs> I've, wo- I've woken up from good dreams where I just wished I could go back to sleep. It's like reading a good book or something. You just wish you could get back into that dream somehow. And I've also woken up from horrifying dreams where I was like, thank goodness none of it was real. It's like the sun coming up. But one thing is for sure that whenever I wake up, I'm either disappointed or relieved to find that whatever I had been dreaming was just completely a fabrication of my mind. And that's how these folks will feel when they, at the end of time, are confronted with the Lord and all his glory. It was all just a mirage. I, I live for what? How small, how puny, what a waste. Now, what does this have to do with loving God, loving others, love in action? I need to wrap this thing up. I think sometimes it is really helpful to define a thing by describing what it is not. I was sharing with somebody this week that when I was in junior high, my teacher, her name was Mrs. Garbage. Guess what we called her behind her back? <laughs> she, she was a French teacher, Mrs. Garbage. Yeah, that's mean. Uh, she used in class one day the word, the English word, opaque. I did not know what opaque meant. If you don't know, that's okay. Opaque means you can't see through it, like uh, the sweater is opaque. But when she used the word opaque, she actually used it to describe a trash bag. Um, I said, Mrs. Garbage, what does opaque mean? And I don't know why she said it this way, but she pointed at a window and said, the window is not opaque. You can see through it. I don't know why she defined it that way. She could have defined it according to what it was, but instead she decided to define it according to what it was not. And what John is doing throughout this letter is at times he is being very careful and pointed and saying, this is what love is. This is what a Christian looks like. This is what a Christian, what they love, what they cherish, how they live, positively describing what a Christian is. Here he is more concerned to point out to you what the opposite looks like so we can see it, so we can appreciate it and understand the goodness of who God is and the right thing to live for by defining it according to what it is not. When we talk about loving God, loving others, and love in action, we are talking about our world of emotions. In 1 John 2, 15 through 17, we are warned against some dangerous affections that threaten to replace loving God with a love for the world and loving others with a love for the things of the world. Jesus said that we cannot serve two masters, for either we will hate the one and love the other or be devoted to the one and despise the other. We cannot love God and others in the way we are called to, in the way that Jesus modeled for us if we have fallen head over heels in love with the world and the things of the world. So again, our text for this morning is an invitation to study our hearts. What's growing there? What do we treasure? What cherished hopes are we pursuing and building our lives around? Is there anything in my life that if God asked me to give that to him, I would say no? Does that exist? Can we say with the psalmist, whom have I in heaven but you, and there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you? Mm. 
This passage begins with a command, do not love the world. And then it goes on to provide three reasons not to. It starts by saying, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. You cannot have God without letting go of the world. And you cannot embrace the world without letting go of God. We see lots of people trying to stand with a foot in both camps. Can't do it. This is why Elijah said to the people on top of Mount Carmel, how, how long will you limp between two opinions? Double-minded people, James calls them. If you desire God and want God, do not love the world. It is a rival suitor, and God will not share space in our hearts with the world. Galatians 6.14, Paul says this, but far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. The world's dead to me and I'm dead to the world. You guys remember that line from the classic old Christian song, I have decided to follow Jesus? The world behind me, the cross before me, no turning back, no turning back. That's why I'm not on the worship team, by the way. This is a true thing to understand in Christianity. We cannot lay hold of the one without letting go of the other. It's just a true statement. Do you want God? If we understood him rightly, we would all answer yes. The second incentive that God gives us, the second reason not to love the world is found in verse 16. It says, the world is passing away along with its desires. It's passing away. It's not going to last. In the Bible, we are treated to some really remarkable pictures of people who lived this out in miniature. You guys might remember in Joshua 6, the story of Rahab. Rahab who hid the spies when they went and spied out Jericho. She hid them and they said, uh, you've been helpful to us. And in exchange, we will spare you and everybody who's in your apartment with you. Hang a scarlet cord out of your window. What's going to happen is the walls are going to fall. God's people are going to rush in. Everybody's going to be put to the sword except for everybody who is with you here in this apartment. We're told that she had her family gathered with her in her apartment, the Bible tells us, when the walls came down. Now, this is remarkable because archaeologists have found out some things about Jericho. The walls were so thick, two chariots could ride side by side on top of them. The conquest of Jericho happened at harvest time. The harvest was in. Archaeologists have found the charred bins full of grain. Jericho was a city where it was because it had a secure water source. God himself, in the Jericho account, describes the fighting men of Jericho as valiant men of war. If you were a citizen of Jericho, you would have had every th the, the desires of your eyes, as it were. Everything that your eyes said would have told you there's no danger here or no imminent danger. Thick walls, lots of food, lots of water, valiant fighting men. Whatever's going to happen might be bad, but it's not happening tonight. But Rahab had her family in her house. 
She believed the coming day. She believed what God said, and it's counted to her as faith. She's actually even listed in Hebrews 11 in our Hall of Fame of Faith. What about Noah and his family gathered into the ark? Rain was unknown at that time. It was an unprecedented, unprecedented event that was about to happen. But we find them believing God gathered into the ark. Or what about you gathered here into this place today? Gathered into the body of Christ, as it were. You're a Christian, I believe, in part because you have heard God say that there is a coming day when the clouds will part, the trump will sound, Jesus is going to come back bringing reward to those who have put their trust in him and bringing a day of wrath for all sinners. You believe it. And so you're gathered into the body of Christ. You're here this morning. And I don't mean to say that this church is some kind of, this building is, this edifice is a sacred place like the some of those other places maybe. I'm just saying that it's representative of the body of Christ. The world is passing away. And to set your heart on it is only asking for heartache and misery in the end. And that's not all. Not only is the world passing away, but also the lusts of it, the desires of it. And if you share the desires of the world, you will pass away. You will not only lose your treasure, you will lose your life. If you love the world, it will pass away and take you with it. Don't go down with the ship. And then the last incentive or reason that God gives us not to love the world. Just to review, John says don't love the world because it can't coexist with a love for God. The world is passing away. It threatens to take you away with it if it captures your heart. The third reason is this, not to love the world because in embracing God, you can live forever. This is the hope of the gospel. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. And what John says here is that, but he who does the will of God abides forever. Verse 17. Now, I am out of time. In fact, I've run long. Forgive me. But if this morning you're listening to all this and you're feeling some level of conviction, your love has grown cold. Or, as I've described it, you are awakening to an awareness that you do love the world. You love the world. You have some secret crushes on this whole system of things down here. What can you do about it? How can you change what you love? That's a, that's a great challenge. I think that if, our, if we find ourselves in love with the world this morning, a couple different possibilities. One is the possibility that you have not yet been reborn in Christ. Uh, I'm... I'm aware that like John Wesley, famous man of the faith, he was a missionary for years on the foreign field. He lived and labored for the kingdom and then awoke to an awareness that he had never become a Christian. <laughs> and so that is certainly a possibility. But it's also possible that you are a sincere believer this morning. You believe the promises of Scripture. 
You love them even, imperfectly, but yes, you love them. But perhaps your love has grown cold. Perhaps over time, it's just the way of things down here on the earth, right? Metal rusts, wood rots, love grows cold. So what do we do? Well, the first is if you are not truly a believer, uh, just, I know I've run long, but grant me time here just to explain how you can become a Christian. The Bible says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We're all sinners. We're all cut off and separated from God because of our sin. But Romans 6.23 says that the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. God wants to give you a free gift. We are saved not because of our resume of good works or anything we do, but because we have put our trust completely, totally in what Jesus did for us. And you don't have to clean yourself up first before you can receive the gift. Romans 5.8 says, But God demonstrates his own love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Now in Romans 10, it says that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord Jesus will be saved. I believe that promise. If you call on the name of the Lord Jesus, understanding rightly who he is and what he's done for you, you will be saved. That's a promise from Scripture. And then I believe the promise in Romans 8, that there is therefore now no, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. In Romans 5.1, where it says that those who have been justified by faith have been put at peace with God. And then I believe that that's an eternal thing. That nothing can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Romans 8, 29. If you're a Christian this morning, though, and you long ago embraced that truth, you love God, but not perfectly, your love has grown cold, you are continuing right now in patterns of sin, unchecked, you feel God's displeasure, but you continue in it anyway. Your love has grown cold. You're fraternizing with the world. <laughs> I want you to know, first of all, that holiness and God's power unto godliness in a Christian life is not that we are perfect, but that we are actively, intentionally striving against the strong downward pull of these days. The answer to both whether you are not yet born again or whether you are, your love has grown cold is to rely on the power of the Holy Spirit to give what's needed. St. Augustine famously said, God, command what you will, but give what you command. God has commanded that you love him and that you don't love the world. And if you find yourself this morning struggling to rise to those commands in your heart, in your affections, in what you treasure, begin by honestly confessing it and asking God to give you what you need. And trust in the power of the Holy Spirit to provide it, but also begin taking steps to get rid of the rival suitor. You've got to cut the world out at those places. Enlist some help. Tell somebody. And begin pursuing what is right and good. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father,
we are so complicated, so fickle, so up and down, so inconsistent. God, as I look back over the course of my walk with you, I see the reality that I have staggered drunkenly at times, God, it seems, between a love for the world and a love for you. God, there have been seasons where I have walked away from what was true and embraced what is wrong, where I have continued in patterns of sin. And then, God, by your grace, you delivered me out of that. You showed me an awareness that I had strayed far from your heart, and you brought me back. God, in your word, it says that though we are faithless, you remain faithful because you cannot deny yourself. God, we know and we celebrate that our standing before you is not rooted in anything we have done. But God, if I understand what John wrote in this book under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, it is that we are to take sober stock of our lives. What is flourishing there? Is our life marked by a joyful obedience? Not perfectly, but sincerely. Do we love your people? Do we love others? Father, if we say that you are in us, but it is not you that spills out of us, then we're just, all of our words are just packaging and a denial of the inner reality. And so, God, I pray, Lord, that you would show us, by your word, God, uh, these, these different ways, God, of, 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 uh, of testing, that we might have assurance. Father, it's a scary thing to begin talking about these things. God, I feel like I'm touching on something very dangerous because you have called us to rest in the promise of Scripture, rest in the gospel. And God, some of us are, are weary and, and, and prone to doubting our salvation. And, and God, to that person, I want them just to rest confidently in the promises of Scripture. But God, there may also be someone here, God, who is fat-heartedly unaware that, that, they, that they are not really a Christian. That they love the world and the things of the world. And so, Father, to the one, I want to speak your words of caution, and to the other, I want to speak words of comfort. God, I want to comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable all at the same time, and I don't know how to do that exactly. God, I don't want to cry fire in a crowded theater. God, you have called us to rest. Rest in your promises. Rest in the truth that our salvation is what Jesus did, not what we do. But God, the proof and the product that we have passed from death into life is that we love, that we keep the commands, that we love who you are, and that we love others. We love especially your people, the church. So God, we have spent a number of Sundays talking about what that looks like, and I thank you, Lord, for challenging us in your word this morning by taking a look at the opposite, loving the world. 
God, God, I pray that you would help us to grow deeper as people who love you, love others, and love in action. In Jesus' name, amen.